Verse 16, why not? We might as well start right at John 3.16, go down to verse 19. Um, I want to welcome our visitors this morning. It's so wonderful to have you. We have some people from Quebec. We have some people from Chicago, the Windy City. And where are you folks from? It sounds a little bit like the tri-state area, but I, I couldn't be certain. New, New Jersey? Nashua County. Nashua County. County. Nassau. Nassau County. I was going to say Nashua County. Nashua County is a little farther north. Nassau County. Well, God bless you. Praise the Lord. My, my wife, Kathy, and I, um, though Kathy was born and raised here in Clearwater, so she's a Florida cracker. Yes, indeed. If you've never met a Florida cracker, uh, you can meet her afterwards. Um, so at any rate, 1975, we moved to Connecticut, the shoreline, uh, just about 70 miles outside of the city. Lived there for about 15, 16 years, and uh, then fled back to Florida. So we're, but we're happy to have you this morning. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Um, for the sake of our visitors this morning, bring you up to speed. I'm in the middle of a series called Our Signs, and they're about the signs of the church. And um, in the Old Testament, the Jews had certain signs that God was moving in the midst of them. Uh, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna that fell, the tremendous victories over their enemies when they'd be in battle. And those were signs that, that they were right with God and that he was in the midst of them. Um, however, there was a point at which Israel's backsliding just almost became permanent and the signs that the Lord's presence was with them was gone. They just simply had the, the scriptures and they had the, the name of, of God, but they didn't have his presence. And then Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came. The promised Messiah came and uh, rose from the dead after laying down his life on the cross. And on the day of Pentecost, after he rose from the dead, the church was born. And it was born as the Holy Spirit entered the lives of a, initially 120 believers and filled them. And when the church was born, the church immediately came forth with signs. But these weren't signs that were necessarily coming down from heaven as much as they were signs coming out of the believers in whom Jesus now lived and dwelt so there were tremendous signs and wonders and miracles that appeared in the New Testament church flowing out of these believers. And you might think that they would be limited perhaps to the, a select group like the apostles or something and that the church would follow the Old Testament pattern where there was this ecclesia, um, a body of believers, and there was this clergy and lady, but it didn't. It didn't follow that pattern. Um, we had what was referred to as the priesthood of the believers. Jesus was Lord of every believer. And uh, he was the head of every believer. Every man and woman that received Jesus as Lord, he lived within them and uh, their body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. He was present with them and it, certainly they had leaders and apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers and such. But, but the supernatural power of God that was evident in the church was flowing through everybody. And that was the greatest sign uh, consolidated that the world saw was that God was with people that were receiving him. What a message to the unsaved world that, uh, hey, I can know God and he can, he can live in my life. 
Uh, and that was a powerful message. So we're in the middle of this series, and I've picked out, I think 16, 17, signs of the New Testament church, and we're going through them. We've looked at the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the sign of preaching, um, the sign of prophesying, um, the sign of tongues, and the sign of miracles. I don't know if we've gotten the sign of miracles yet, but at any rate, there's a bunch of them still coming. This morning is a special sign. It's uh, not one that you would necessarily get excited about, but it's a sign of the New Testament church, a supernatural sign of the church, just as much as all the rest of them. And so this morning, we're going to look at the 10th sign of the New Testament church, the sign of persecution. And so I asked you to find John chapter 16, and I'd like to read beginning in that famous 16th verse. We're going to go down to verse 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now this is the judgment by which they are condemned, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. In that thing that Jesus said, we have the reason why persecution exists and why it is supernatural. The sign of persecution in the New Testament church. We're not talking about all forms of social persecution. We're talking only about that unique sign of persecution that Jesus told his disciples they would experience. Now, true biblical nonconformist Christianity has given the world its greatest gifts. The church has, is responsible for instituting compassion and dignity for the poor, for widows, for orphans, and for downtrodden people. I'm going to mention these things. I just have a, a few of them I want you to think about. And you can go um, Google them or just remember your history lessons. But see if as you go in your mind through the history of the world that you don't find that this is true, that it is the church that instituted the compassion and the dignity for the poor. It is the, the church. It is, and let me change that. Let's say Christianity. Thinking of Christianity in its pure biblical sense of the word because the church has not always been a home for Christianity or reflected Christianity. So let's say Christianity has, is responsible for elevating the status of women. Christianity is responsible for bringing health care and education to the common people of the world. Christianity is responsible for abolishing slavery and other forms of human cruelty. Introducing prison reform, workers' rights. Christianity is responsible for the rise of individual freedom over cruel monarchies. And instituting representative government through powerful declarations like the Magna Carta and the uh, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States. 
And most of all, Christianity, with its roots in the Old Testament and Judaism, is responsible for teaching the world monotheism, that God is one. In the Old Testament, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And when God came into the world, there wasn't a team that showed up. There was Jesus. And in him, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. So Christianity is responsible for letting individuals in the world know that God is an individual, that they were made in the likeness of an individual God, that their human form and their human likeness was made and they were designed to be a child of God. And not only monotheism, but maybe the next and most important step, Christianity revealed that God is love. Instead of the angry God that's demanding your virgin children be thrown into its volcanoes or sacrifices being made, Christianity revealed the God of love, that God truly does love us, understands, though our rebellion is against him and sin is against him, God, before he ever created us, had a plan before we were ever made to redeem us. In fact, he designed us to be redeemable. So we were made in the image of his son who came into the world as the Lamb of God. We were made ready to be saved, knowing that we would fall away. That wonderful message that God is love and history is not going to escape the love of God. God's love has won and will win ultimately. Now, in spite of all this wonderful blessing, the greatest gifts ever given to the world were given by Christianity. Despite that fact that the modern concept of individual rights owes its origin to the Bible and to Christianity, why, and I ask this as a, perhaps somewhat of a rhetorical question, but a question nonetheless, it's a valid question, why is the world's culture migrating toward humanism, progressivism, socialism, all godless ideologies that are producing a growing disdain and intolerance for Christianity. In other words, the world continues to bite the hand that feeds it. And it's perplexing to consider why does that keep happening? Why in all of our technological ability to communicate today is the message of what true pure Christianity has given. Why is the world running away? And of course, I don't mean that everyone is running away, but in terms of the, the institutes that set the culture of the world, why does the world continue to fight against the light? Well, Jesus explains in a very simple answer, part of it was in the scripture in John chapter 3, we'll take one look at it again, explains why that's happening. When he said, this is the basis for God's judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds and their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And then again in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus said, The world hates me 
because I testify about it that its works are evil. And just like a petulant child that's reproved by his mother or her father, sometimes children can, can become angry. They don't like being corrected. Um, they hate to find out or, or be, be revealed as being out of order or wrong or what they're doing is going in the wrong direction. And so Jesus correctly said, the world hates me because I show that its works are evil. And yet, when you look at Jesus, other than challenging the religious leaders who were tasked with the responsibility of bringing the light of truth and representing God, other than directly confronting them, Jesus never called anyone um, He never put people down. He never called them names. He didn't rail against people. Instead, you don't have to work hard to discover the the argument in the Gospels that Jesus loved people. And he loved them in the way they needed to be loved, not necessarily in the way that they wanted to be loved. He met them at the point of their needs, not necessarily at the point of their wants. But ultimately, in retrospect, people would look back and say, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. He truly walked in love. But the reality is, is that those who clung to darkness did hate Jesus. And they hated him because he was the light that came into the world that exposed that what they were doing was wrong. So if you were clinging to wrongdoing, you would be uncomfortable and eventually probably become an adversary, an enemy, and turn against Jesus. Peter also says in 1 Peter 4, Dear friends, as he writes to the Christians, he says, Do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ, so that when his glory is revealed, you may rejoice and be glad. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God, rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a criminal or a troublemaker. But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. In other words, if you are attacked because you're Christ-like and strictly and solely because the light of Christ in you is disturbing the darkness in the world, then Peter writes to you and he says, rejoice because if you are being attacked for Jesus, rejoice that you bear such a glorious and wonderful name as the name of Jesus. Now the sign of persecution is a supernatural sign. And you'll notice if if you read through with the intent of of studying this particular topic, read through the New Testament, you'll notice that the sign of persecution sorts out the difference between glory and shame. Because it always is about the confrontation of sin's shame with the glory of Jesus' light. And the way Jesus confronts sin is very unique to him. And it was extremely unique, contrasted to the way the religious institutions of his day confronted sin. Um, And Jesus confronted sin 
by pointing out to people their need for the loving Heavenly Father and that they needed to turn around and they needed to come to the light. And that light was going to catch you in an adversarial position if you did not like the idea that you were fundamentally wrong and there needed to be a change in your life. So people that are entrenched in their error and don't want to admit that there's something wrong always have a problem with the light of uh, Jesus' glory. So the glory and the shame were always sorted out under the sign of persecution. And um, in Jesus' parable of the sower, he kind of further describes this, uh, this situation by saying persecution arises on account of the word. You remember when he was talking about the sower sowing the word of God? And he said how that it was sown in various types of ground and it would grow up and the heat of the day would come and wither that plant. And he likened that to persecution. He said, well, when the word grows up in you and you start manifesting the glory of God, the sun, persecution like the sun is going to come and you're going to feel the heat of that thing. And so persecution arises, Jesus said, because of the word. So the natural antagonism that exists between the glory of Jesus and the shame of sin is manifested when the word of God is spoken into the darkness. So it provokes the sign of persecution against the word when that word is spoken. So there exists this antagonism between the light and the darkness. And that antagonism manifests in direct persecution when somebody genuinely and in the spirit and in the love of God manifests God's word to the extent that you're not getting their opinion, you're not getting their, their, uh, their, uh, their character is not detracting from the light of Christ, from the light of his word. It's just simply the light makes the darkness uncomfortable and the darkness would rather stamp it out than investigate the idea that there might be something that I need. There might be a change that needs to take place. How many of you have raised children or are in the process of raising children? Pretty much most everybody. So at any rate, if you have or if you've had nieces, nephews, whatever, you've been involved in raising children, you know what I'm talking about. Even good kids can sometimes uh, get a little petulant. They don't like to have the light put on them, and, and sometimes you'll think, oh, my little darling. Whew. Is that a monster I see <laughs> coming out of my, my little sunshine? You get the idea. So what is that? That is that natural antagonism that takes place. Now, God's claim that sin is a transgression against him and it makes people accountable to him, that is at the root of why people persecute the word of God when someone speaks it into the darkness. It boils down, synthesizes down to that simple formula that God says sin is not a human flaw. Sin is a transgression against me. In other words, God says I take sin personally. Sin is rebellion against me. So that humans don't hammer out the, quote, problem of sin 
between themselves or among themselves or by themselves, but with God. Because sin is an issue between God and the sinner. Sin is a broken relationship with God. And so at the very heart of persecution is that idea that I owe a responsibility to the living God for the flaws, the imperfections, and the errors in my life. And uh, the hardened position would be, well, God should just understand. I've had a hard life. Things are difficult for me. If you could see what I've had to go through, we all have reasons. But that rebellion was there before the reasons ever nurtured it and brought it forth. They just simply gave an opportunity. In fact, Jesus said, had I not spoken the word to them, they would have no knowledge of their sin. They would not be aware of their sin. But because I've come and spoken to them, now they've got nowhere to hide. You know, the Pharisees had a good thing going on. The religious elite, the elitists had a wonderful gig until Jesus came. And he didn't just come out and attack them. He just simply came, but he didn't come from them. And he didn't arrive in, and check in with them. He was simply there, initially in the wilderness, and then from town to town, to village to village, and the light was emanating. And the light is independent because God is independent. And so they had a good thing going until they got angry because he was showing simply by the truth and the light that he was revealing that they were indeed in sin, those that were uh, railing against everybody else. So God's claim that sin is a transgression against him is what makes people accountable to him, and that's at the heart. Now, in John 15, Jesus said, if you were of the world, now he's, again, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who are about to become Christians, his disciples. And he says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, and I chose you out of the world. See, when Jesus chooses you, when you let him choose you, if you let that choosing actually take place in your life, you're going to be outside of the world. You'll still be living in the world, but something about you is going to be very different in contrast with the world. You're going to have a different headquarters than you used to have. You're going to have a different worldview. You're going to have a different authority over your life. You're going to pursue different things. You're going to have a different uh, vision of what is valuable and what is important. And so the world's going to notice that change in you. And so you don't need to run around and, and uh, criticize the world and badmouth the world or say uh, uh, absurd things like, well, I used to be of the world, a sinner like you, but now I'm, you know. Um, you know, you don't need to go uh, be immature and, and, and behave and act like that. You just are going to manifest that you're walking in the light and the light is different. And that's one thing we know about the world. The world doesn't like it when you're not with them because they need all the confirmation they can get. You know, if you remember back when some of you ran around with bad gangs and groups or whatever, I know you look at this crowd this morning and think, surely nobody here was like that. But I, see, I know some of you, so. <laughs> and <clears throat> so if you remember, you know, one thing about the gang, gang can't tolerate 
somebody from an outside gang. Why? Because you don't validate them. And that's what the world is like. That's what sin is like. So you get this idea, the light comes. And Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But I chose you out of the world. Because of it, the world hates you. Remember the word that I've spoken to you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they will what? Come on. They will persecute you. If they kept my sayings, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. So we always have to remember, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you really genuinely authentically are experiencing persecution as a Christian, you'll know what I'm going through is aimed at Jesus. And it's aimed at the one that Jesus called Father. And so that's, that is what they're lashing out at, is they're lashing out at him. So in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, Paul said, For it has been granted to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Kathy and I were having our Wednesday morning Bible study uh, last week, and she brought up something that uh, we, we were thinking back and remembering some 48 years ago when we first got saved in the Jesus People Movement, you know, and, and this great radical revival that was taking place among Jesus people, um, we were taught when we first got saved, you, well, you're probably going to get persecuted. We really seriously thought for a while about not having children. We thought, well, you know, Jesus is coming back Thursday, <laughs> and things between now and then are just going to go to hell in a handbasket. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be vapor, smoke, and fire, and wars, and tanks, and all kinds of terrible running, and hiding, and falling into pits, and, you know... We just were, we were just, you know, we dug into the word and we were hanging on and we were ready to suffer for Jesus. And so we were told, you know, you're going to be persecuted. And so I was really indoctrinated into us. And, you know, I guess there's some people that they just have unstable personality, unstable character. So, you know, you take an unstable person, you get them say they're going to be an unstable Christian unless they get some kind of ministry to help them. You wonder, where do all the Christian kooks come from? Well, they were kooky before they got saved. So now they're saved kookiness, unless they let God mature them and change them. So naturally, yes, there were some people who just wore this persecution complex like, like some kind of a guilt coat and walked around looking for persecution. And um, they usually would get it, too. Uh, because the world doesn't like persecution complexes, and they shouldn't. Jesus didn't walk around it with a persecution complex, and neither do the, did the disciples that we read about in the book of Acts. They walked around in joy. They walked around in love. They walked around uh, uh, thinking that they were going to be persecuted. But Kathy and I, we were taught, you're, you're probably going to suffer for Christ. Well, we didn't like that idea at all. We were not the least bit interested in being persecuted. So, of course, we wanted to follow Jesus and live for him and, and just believe God, Lord, just take care of us and keep us from suffering. We don't want to suffer. We've, you know, we've, 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 we've been through a little bit of suffering and, you know, we've had suffering and we've had peace. We liked peace better. So, um, but we had it 
in our mind and in our experience that the more you let your light shine, the world that's, in, that's entrenched in darkness, they're going to come at you. They're going to come at you. And you need to be ready. How you and I understand the sign of persecution and how we deal with it and respond to it is the difference between glory and shame. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire, everyone say desire. desire. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. And boy, we knew that verse. So we knew the more we desired to follow Christ and to walk in the word and walk in the spirit of God, the the greater the likelihood that we would attract persecution. When you desire and when you pursue the desire and you give yourself to the desire to live godly. Now, not everyone who runs around and calls themselves a Christian is living godly in Christ Jesus. And would you say that's true? Yeah. yeah, that's certainly true. Not everybody is desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus. Um, some of them just, you know, they love the benefits, but, you know, they're not looking necessarily to, to be transformed into a godly life. But when you desire to live godly in Christ, the devil's going to stir people up against you. You start desiring to live godly, look for them, they're coming, they're coming at you. They're going to come at you. Now, they're not necessarily going to come at you because the devil is, is trying to get you to not want to live God in Christ Jesus. One of the things Satan's figured out is that true Christians cannot be turned away from their love for God or their insistence upon following Jesus. Now, he could pick off half-hearted people. He could pick off people that haven't really completed the process and really come to Christ. But he just can't pick off believers that have made their minds up. If you've got a made-up mind, Satan knows that he can't, talk you out of wanting to live godly in Christ. But what he can do is he can corrupt your desire to live godly in Christ. How does he do it? Send some persecution and lure you into conflict. Get you to react against that persecution in a way that corrupts your desire to live godly. You start fighting and railing and get embroiled in controversy with those that persecute you, and the devil sits back and just lets you tie yourself up in a big knot. He, he has been so successful at stripping glory from the church of Jesus Christ because of people that when persecution arose, they got down on the devil's level and wrestled and fought and argued and said, yeah, well... So were you, you know, and, and those, you've heard those little, remember those little childish retorts back and forth. And a picture Christians responding, when persecution arises, there's a way to deal with it. And you always have to understand why it's there and what its purpose is. It's the light <laughs> probing, trying to get you to come out of the light, to step into the darkness and to get into it with them where they live on their turf. So let me talk, this leads me to this important thing we need to
talk about this morning concerning the sign of persecution. There is a difference between suffering persecution and suffering consequences. Hello. Some people that suffer persecution suffer persecution. Some people that claim to suffer persecution are suffering consequences. 1 Peter 4 deals with it when he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a, you ready for this, a meddler. You know, if you're a meddler, look at the company you're keeping. Murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler. Busybody in other people's affairs. It's amazing when the Bible starts sorting out what sin is, the way it throws some of these things together. You would think that God would have tier one, tier two, tier three, uh, you know, levels of sin. And I, and honestly, I think he, there are degrees. But I'm always impressed with some of the things that make it up in that tier one category. <laughs> And meddlers are not in a good place. <laughs> so he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, then you're blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a meddler, a murderer, a thief, or evildoer. But if one is ill-treated and suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But give glory to God, for he is deemed worthy to suffer in that name. Now, I had opened up with a couple of statements. Christianity has given the world its greatest gifts, and uh, the modern concept of rights, individuals' rights, owes its origin to the body, or to the Bible. Well, there are many people that will argue vehemently against those statements and will object forcefully. They'll argue that the very opposite is true, pointing out people leaders, and organizations that have brought suffering to others while invoking the name of Christianity. And of course, history is pockmarked with all kinds of terrible black marks uh, of suffering against millions of people under that heading, the endorsement that it brings of Christianity. And so there's going to be criticism. People are going to argue Christianity hasn't done the world that much good. In fact, it's brought a lot of evil. But the fact of the matter is that criticism that they bring deserves to be hung around the necks of tyrants and evil people who have used the name of Christianity to provide camouflage and access for their wickedness but they're not real Christians. They simply see the political opportunity. They simply see the association. They see the opportunity for coverage under the name of the gospel. There's tremendous influence, and wherever there's power, and let's be plain about it, Jesus Christ in his gospel brought the greatest power to the world that the world has ever seen. In a relatively few handful of years, the most persecuted and defeated group of citizens or people or subjects, I should say, the Roman Empire, rose up and took over the Roman Empire. That's power. 
amazing power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So wherever there's power, the world is going to be there wanting to tap that power and to use it. And that explains most of the criticism that is leveled against the claim that Christianity has brought the greatest good to the world. They will argue that, uh, well, people in the name of Jesus, well, see, you've got your answer right there. Anyone can run around and claim the name of Jesus. But this brings me to the next group. What about real Christians? Now we're not talking about the fake Christians. What about the real Christians who are criticized and condemned by the world for practicing foolishness or engaging in sin? There's certainly been a lot of that that's going on through history, hasn't it? And we've got some of that happening today. Um, the question is, can the real Christian who is criticized, attacked, condemned, rejected, cast out, defamed for practicing foolishness or sin, can they take refuge under the sign of persecution? Is there room for them under that covering? Can they say, I'm being persecuted? Because under the sign of persecution, the Bible says the spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. Great favor from God rests upon people that are genuinely persecuted under the sign. Unfortunately, I think there are lots of people who occasionally spend some time thinking they are taking refuge under the sign of persecution. But the spirit of glory is really not on them. The glory they feel is self-justification. And the glory of that persecution complex that says, they just don't love me. They just don't get me. They don't care about me. When the reality is, there are many believers who bring upon themselves the criticisms that they rightly deserve because of the way we, and I'll include myself, because I've certainly had my share of doing that in my lifetime. How many of us have been burnt in trials? Come into church on Sunday morning. How you doing? Oh, God, I've been going through it. Whew. I've been in the fire. And you could smell the smoke on them. But they lit those fires themselves. They set themselves on fire. They're playing with matches when they shouldn't. They, 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 they lit themselves up. But they can't see it. And so they'll come into church. They'll get among their brothers and sisters. And they'll want that love and the hug. And, and should they have that love? Yes. Oh my, my goodness. People that light themselves on fire, they need, they need love more than anybody. But that love should help them come to the place where they realize you do not have the right to claim that you're persecuted. You are not persecuted. You are simply suffering under the consequences of your own foolishness and your own bad behavior. You know, there sometimes is nothing more powerful than a Christian who's honest, who's just simply honest, says, yeah, I brought this on myself. It's my fault. And... Um, and it's a shame for me to even try to associate myself with people who really have been persecuted and suffer real persecution. Are you listening to what I'm saying? Yes. So, can they find refuge under the sign of persecution? Let me throw out a couple, of, two, three examples for you. Is the Christian coworker 
who meddles in everyone's business, gossiping, talking more than they're working, and is attacked for it by their unsaved workers, are they entitled to claim that they're being persecuted? They're being attacked. They even say, you Christians. And they attack your Christianity. Oh, I, I'm, I must be being persecuted. Are they really entitled to that refuge? Is the Christian who rails on incessantly against certain types of sinners? You know, we get selective about the sin we want to attack. And so incessantly they're always going after this one or two types of sinners, railing against them, and they get challenged by unsaved, worldly, rough people, and they get called and cussed at and put down and criticized for being hypocrites and being loveless. Do they have a place under that banner of persecution, under the sign of persecution, that they can run under that and take refuge and find sympathy. Finally, is the Christian who fills their social media pages with weird spiritual manifestos. I can, I can, I can hardly say it without laughing because of all of the crazy stuff that I... See Christians sometimes put on Facebook on their, you know, and go on these tears and everything and proclamations. And I think to myself, the world is reading this. And they're thinking, who is this nut? Who is this nut? Who are they talking to? So it's a Christian that fills their social media pages with weird spiritual manifestos or reveals personal gripes. Just feel the need. Just pour it out to the world. I hate this and can't stand that kind of mustard. I don't know why people have to put ketchup on their french fries. and Just going off on revealing gripes and everything. Or they're venting their anger. And they are railing against uh, this group or that group. And then they get publicly called out. Someone attacks them viciously. Worldly unsaved people. Unsaved dogs. Barking and sending them fleeing back into the corners of their church for refuge. Oh, brothers and sisters, pray for me. I've been persecuted on Facebook. Do they have a right to claim refuge under the banner of persecution? And the obvious answer is, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or a meddler, or any of those other things. When for your own behavior, you and I are called out, well, we just got to tough it, hang our head in shame and say, I repent, I was wrong. I was wrong, but you know, the Father still loves me and I, I need to go sort it out with him. The only thing for the, for the Christian who is suffering consequences and not really suffering persecution to do is the option of go to our heavenly Father who loves us and ask for his help to change and with his help start developing better behavior and better practices. Hallelujah. Now, I know I could be accused of being very unloving by making a suggestion like that, for basically saying, if you want a better life, be a better person. 
At any rate, so let, let me close this, let me close this out and talk for a moment about the umbrella of anointing. Because I want this message to come down and land on a, on a really positive note because there's a tremendous blessing under the sign of persecution. If there really is persecution arising against the church, that means that the church has lost itself in Jesus enough for the light to shine and they're coming after the light. And so it is a great and a healthy sign. And so in 1 Peter 4 and 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You see, when you genuinely walk in Christ and you're attacked for it, you're going to find that the spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you. Remember when they stoned Stephen, that the Bible says he looked up to heaven, he said, I see the Son of Man standing. And the Bible says he fell asleep as they were finishing him off with that stoning. And so the Bible says when you truly walk in Christ, and you are experiencing real persecution, something wonderful in the horrible, maybe the most horrible moments of your life, in the horrible moment of your life, the most wonderful thing is going to occur. The Lord's going to counterbalance that experience and His glory, His personal presence is going to be there because you know what? He Himself trod that path first. He was there first, suffering the godly for the ungodly, and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, the light has got to shine through us. We have got to let that light shine. We have to have that attitude that Christ had. And that attitude is perhaps described in no better words than that which Paul wrote in Philippians 2 when he said, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to, constantly running around saying, do you know who I am? Do you realize who you're persecuting? You said, what against me? I've done nothing but good. He never pled his own case. He never argued for himself. He just simply said what he said. The only time he took up a defense was in defense of the Father and of righteousness when he was speaking to the religious leaders who were claiming that they were speaking for God. And Jesus would not allow the public who stood on the sidelines watching this carnival going on, he wouldn't allow them to be deceived as he sat silent and let them tell lies. And he just spoke the truth. He said, you're whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You concentrate on making people think that you're all that, but inside you know that you're just manipulators and hateful. And so he told them right to their face. And of course, they eventually arrested him. And what did he do on Calvary's cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So let me close with this thought as we <clears throat> gather our thoughts and prepare to pray. No Christian chases persecution. No real Christian goes out looking for persecution. The sign of persecution is never going to come as a result of you looking to get yourself persecuted. <laughs> That's called looking for attention. And looking for attention does not qualify as a justifiable practice 
to be persecuted. If you go out looking for persecution and it's just wanting to get attention and you make a spectacle out of yourself in the name of Jesus and with a bunch of tracks and everything, um, you've got nothing to, um, to rejoice over. But real Christians, persecution finds you. You don't find persecution. And it finds you while you're chasing Jesus. As you're following him, as you're pursuing him, the closer to him, the more like him you are, the more the light is going to have something to say and they're going to want to challenge you. So I want you to close your Bible and stand with me this morning. I didn't spend a lot of time talking about uh, our modern world today and what's happening in it and how persecution seems to be manifesting. You can sort all that out for yourself. But the basic principle is here this morning, and that is that all that desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution.